0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Picture Blurfect with your host, Naomi Harlem Bacchus volkerson Thanks so much for joining. I got a new little setup here. I have a new microphone. I've got some new headphones. I'm not in my normal recording studio, if you want to call that. So at any moment, I anticipate my husband to walk through the basement door and interrupt this very important podcast. So we're just going to go with it. And if he interrupts, he interrupts. And in the other corner, I'm going to give you the play-by-play. In the other corner, I have my... Un- adorable dog whom I love with all of my heart. My dear Pippa angel Pippa is just staring at me and now I said her name and she's looking at me even more intently with these adorable doggy eyes because she's looking for her second dinner. So we divide her dinner into like one, she gets at six o'clock and the other she gets at nine o'clock and you know we're almost nine o'clock, but we're not there yet, honey. She's just, just got a little while to wait. So this is going to be an interesting recording session. Anyways, I'm so excited to bring to you my episode this week with Dr. Lisa Kilpilla. And I want to say from the outset that when I introduced Dr. Kilpilla... I actually mispronounce her name. So Lisa, if you're listening to this, I sincerely apologize because as someone who grew up her entire life who mispronounced both her first and last name, I sincerely apologize. And I should have asked that from the get-go. But she... She's an assistant professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. She's a wonderful, just a delightful human being. And I actually heard about her from a previous guest on this podcast, Dr. Carolyn Becker. So it's such a small world. That's what I love about the eating disorder research community. Everybody has either like worked with each other, collaborated on some sort of research project, or they trained under one another, or maybe did like a small research project in their lab and then came back and took the those methods and um, the knowledge that they learned from that stint over into their own lab. And I just think it's fascinating. I love that about the research world in general. So I'm so excited to bring to you my research with her. She really addresses a critical gap in the field because we talk about this stereotype, right? This ongoing stereotype that eating disorders only affect white women, of the higher socioeconomic status and thin people, right? And we also think about age. You think it only affects teenagers, adolescents, young, very young people, even children to that extent. And while that is very true, there is still a lot of, you know, we're still starting to collect a lot of data now that shows that eating disorders doesn't discriminate against age either. It can happen. It can come on, if you will, at any point in your life. And so Lisa is really looking at the research on older people that are suffering from eating disorders. And that's such a critical gap that she's addressing. And I'm so excited to bring to you her exciting research and and all of the great work that she and her lab are doing. So before we get started, I'm going to go off on a little tangent because I took a trip to North Carolina last weekend to visit my sister. Um, she's graduating next weekend. So we're going to make the trek back down there uh, next weekend uh, for her graduation. I'm So proud of her. She's getting her master's in, in clinical psychology. She's going to be a therapist. I'm just so incredibly proud of my baby sister. Um, and it was a great weekend. I, um, it's pretty much the first one we kind of have gone in a, in a while, even since our Alaska, not Alaska, oh my gosh, I do want to go to Alaska. Since our Iceland and Greece trip last summer, we try to be really responsible and not go out too much, given that you know the pandemic is still out there. We're vaccinated, boosted, all of that. But cases are rising, especially here in the D.C. region. But anyway, we went to, to North Carolina. We did a lot of eating out, and eating out historically has been really nerve-wracking for me. But I really have learned over the years, especially in getting married and dating my husband. I've I've been able to really move past that and just learn to enjoy myself. So I've really grown in that regard. But let me tell you one thing that really gets under my skin, and that is calorie counts on menus. And I hear everybody just in who's listening right now like, yes. But this it's true, like why on earth do those need to be listed and i know i believe that it's now law in england where now like i think it's of a certain size of a restaurant or a business you are you have to post the number of calories even like a bar you have to post the number of calories in your beers or whatever you're serving and it's just it's it, it really just sets the tone for the rest of my evening and I can't get past that number. And I know many other people who with disordered eating, with a history of eating disorders, really struggle with this too. There has to be a better way. And, you know, this we've done a whole podcast episode on this. So make sure to tune in to, to that episode. It's in season one. So make sure to look at the previous episode. But there's no evidence to suggest that it even works to it because there's this notion that displaying calories on menus are going to prompt people to make healthier choices. But I think the data has shown already from what we do know is that it doesn't make any lick of difference. People are still going to order a cheeseburger and fries because that's what they want to eat and they should be able to eat that. And so my thing is like, I don't want to discount that, you know, the health side component. And I, I recognize that obesity is a problem and it's something that that should be addressed and people's health should be top priority. However, you can't do that by just completely discounting a whole sector and group of people that are really suffering and they go into a restaurant and now it becomes a debilitating experience that just it just defeats the whole purpose of I think the overall goal of what this effort is supposed to do. So my thing is, why can't you have, you know, just a regular menu and then upon request, ask for a separate menu or you could do like have a QR code next to each menu item. And so people can scan it with their phones and and there it can display the calorie counts. Something to really just so that the numbers aren't just in your face. So every single restaurant we went to, saw those numbers and it, it takes everything in me to one ignore it because you can't it's right there you're trying to decide what to eat and right when you want to decide what to eat there it is and so it took everything in me because my go-to is always going to be a salad or something that's low in calories and it makes me not choose what I actually want and it really had to train myself to not do that um, so that was That was a little difficult for me. And I can only imagine people that are maybe listening in Europe right now. And and if you have some thoughts on on how this law is being implemented and it's it's downstream effects on on you going out and and with your friends, like, please contact me. I want to hear from you and, and what your ideas are on maybe how we can push back on this, if anything, maybe roll back that policy, whatever, whatever we can do. I just think the more voices that are in on this together, we can maybe prevent further damage and maybe from it becoming more mainstream than it already is. So that's my little detour of a story for you all um, about my trip to North Carolina. But overall, it was such a wonderful visit. I love seeing my family and just being able to, to laugh like really laugh and, and have some fun and, and not worry about work for once. Cause I think even when, I, when we're at home and just kind of having a chill weekend at home, you always in the back of your mind are thinking about work. Um, so that was a wonderful little getaway and I'm excited to go next weekend and see her graduating. So that's a little bit about me and I hope everyone that's listening is is feeling and doing well and, and that you're being kind and, and gentle to yourself no matter what you're going through and that you're, you're putting your mental and your emotional health first in all that you do because it's stressful out there I, I totally get it and I hope this interview with Dr. Kilpela is, is something that can really inspire you um, as you move on with the rest of your week and, and everything that you're going about doing so without further ado Dr. Lisa Kilpela. <music> We are on the air with Dr. Lisa Capella. I'm so excited to have you. So before we get started, share a little bit about yourself, like your current position, your educational
1: background, and your research interests. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this chance to talk about some of our work we're doing. Um, So, yes, I'm Dr. Lisa Smith-Kilpola. I'm an assistant professor at UT Health San Antonio in the Lozano Long School of Medicine, and I'm housed in an aging institute called the Barshop Institute for Longevity and Aging Studies. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist by training um, so did my uh, Ph.D. at Emory University residency at Duke. And then I came to San Antonio for my postdoctoral fellowship to work with a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Carolyn Becker. Um, and that's actually kind of what launched this area of my career was my postdoc with her. And then we loved San Antonio. And so I was able to come over to the School of Medicine in town and stay on um, six and a half years in here. So. Oh, oh, that's that's so great. So how exactly did you
0: get in into the eating disorder field to begin with? Like, were you interested in it from the get-go or
1: did you kind of stumble into it? I actually, um, I started this, sort of my work in this field actually as an undergraduate student. So I was in Carolyn's um, class. I got an A on my first paper and she was like, hey, I do this body image stuff. Do so you want to come join my lab? And I was like, sure, sounds interesting. And we were doing... Um, some of the early work on what then became the Reflections Body Image Program. So um, a health promotion, evidence-based body image program that was disseminated widely amongst sororities across North uh, the United States. And then it's actually now as the body project has gone global. Um, but we were doing some of the early work with that. And these are done. It's a discussion-based program, very rooted in behavioral theory and something called cognitive dissonance which is basically if you have a belief, so for instance, if I believe that thinner is better and I'm put in a situation where I actually have to talk about why that's not the case and I have to do actions that go against that belief, I'm more likely to shift my belief to be in line with my actions. And so we were doing these small group discussion-based programs and I was like, oh my gosh, so many people are affected by not liking their bodies. And it just, it kind of was the the magnitude of that problem and how, you know, hearing the kinds of opportunities that some of these college women were opting out of because they were ashamed of what they looked like or their bodies. And and I was just like, we've got to do something about that. And so that's really kind of what, what got me down this pathway to begin with.
0: That's so fascinating. And you're mm-hmm. so right. It just, I think you will not meet someone that doesn't have some kind of insecurity about their body image. It's just, it's so widespread. Um, So it definitely needs more research. So before we actually dig into a lot of your published work which is all just really fascinating, can you share with listeners why it's important to study body image and eating disorders because you particularly focus on older women and the research literature has primarily focused on a certain population. So that has been problematic.
1: Yes, problematic indeed. And that is something that the eating disorders and body image field as a whole. Recently, we've really started to acknowledge that and own that, that for the longest time, we focused on essentially young white women and generally higher SES. That was sort of the eating disorders stereotype. Um, and I would say in the last oh, oh, maybe two decades or so, we've really started to be like, mm. <laughs> this is actually a bigger problem. Um, Cindy Bulek's group came out with the nine truths of eating disorders and talks about that, like, nobody is immune to them. Um, and so I think we're starting to really realize just how narrow we had been and that we really do need to, to look at these disorders and, and body image disturbance as well um, in, in broader populations because everybody's affected by it. Eating disorders as, you know, true medical conditions – are linked with a lot of very, very serious health consequences, including elevated mortality, especially in anorexia nervosa. Um, So I think we've got a a true health risk there with those. One of the things that's really interesting with the body image literature, and so by body image, I'm talking how you think about your body, how you evaluate your body, how you feel about your body and your appearance. And um, I'm not sure if you've had folks on your um, show before who've talked about that, but some of the longitudinal data are starting to show that at least in younger populations, if you take eating disorders off the table. Right. So I think it's, it's intuitive to say if somebody doesn't like their body, they may develop an eating disorder to try and fix it. So if you take that off the table, that body image disturbance is predictive of all different kinds of health problems beyond eating disorders. And so we're starting to see like, this is a, this is a problem in many health domains. Um, and so I think seeing how this can really affect health and life. And like I mentioned before, you know, opportunities that people are stepping out of quality of life. Um, it can, it can really affect how people are functioning in the world. So I think that's why it's so important to, to give uh, resources and time and energy and to a better understanding um, how both of these conditions operate and what we could do to, to help
0: exactly and, and like you said I'm really glad that the field is now moving towards recognizing that there's this gap in the in the data that we have and and trying to to Bridge that gap somehow with with more research because they, you're right, they don't discriminate. It can affect everyone. Uh, so one of your earlier pieces of research was a literature review, which you can possibly first explain what that is for listeners that may not know what that is. But you did a, a, just a digging of what we know so far about the relationship between body image and you already alluded to it, the associated mental and physical health problems and behaviors in adult women. So what did you learn from doing that extensive literature review and like have there been previous surveys that have asked do you wish to be thinner like do we have that data before or is that something that is just
1: new um for the first part of the question what is a literature review um basically what that means is that our team went to all of the databases of published research out there and we looked for any anything that had been published or um put out there on these specific topics and then we take all of those um, articles and posters and we synthesize them to see sort of what that message is Um, in terms of other basically why why we launched into that was was actually some of the early data i mentioned where in younger populations body image was predictive of these other health problems and we're like but those really end at like 25 and we have no reason to believe that when somebody turns 25 they suddenly like are fine with their body and don't have any body image concerns. And right. so nobody had really spent, there, there've been a few studies, but not many looking at what, what happens after 25 to, yeah. to women, especially, you know, we're more, more vulnerable than men are. Um, and I know that that's a, also a growing literature. Um, and so that's what sort of inspired us to turn to this review to see what is actually out there um, and identify some of these gaps and limitations um, in, in the existing literature. And so, Um, you know, we found that body image disturbance or or not liking your body is actually pretty common across the lifespan. Um, and even since we published that paper, I think a lot it's, it's growing. This field is growing. So there have been a number of newer studies that have started to look at that. Um, and with regards to your question about, are you, do you want to be thinner? It's really interesting because when you talk to older women and midlife and older women, they're going to be like, I don't want to be the model on TV. Like, I know that that's not (laughs) in my, right. Yeah. They're like, but I want to lose some weight and I don't like the rolls or I don't like the flab or I don't like my muffin top. So they're still really, really hard on themselves. Yes. And their expectations or their hopes aren't necessarily in line with what younger women are wanting to look like. Um, They're just wanting to be different than they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something where there there are different kinds of um, surveys that ask sort of different aspects of how do you want to look different? So sometimes it's asking, do you not like these body parts? Um, and we see definitely that, that older women and midlife women are like, yep, don't like those body parts. Sure. Um, there are some that ask, like, do you want to be thinner? Do you think thinner is better? Um, and then there are some that ask about, like, how worried are you about what the aging process is going to do to your physical appearance? So we call it aging appearance, anxiety. Okay. Um, and so we see in, in younger, older, so maybe midlife um, even sort of, you know, 25 to 45 ish people are having more aging appearance anxiety. But once you get into the older ladies, they're not as much into the, they're not experiencing or at least reporting anxiety about the aging process because they're they're aged at that point in time so some of the things that they're worried about have happened yet they are still dissatisfied with their bodies so we did a study a couple years ago same group with carolyn and the we looked at across different age groups so we had from 18 to 81 and in the oldest age group which was 69 and 61 and over they had the highest percentage of women who had extreme dissatisfaction. Wow. Yeah, and so there, there's definitely some some dislike and some, you know, yeah. real disturbance in terms of what people look like. It's just, it, I think, qualitatively, it looks a little bit different. Yeah, that
0: makes a lot of sense. And I think it also... I've, I've talked about this with previous guests, it depends on how you ask the question on the survey, so the, the, the data you get really depends on the way the question is framed mm-hmm. to begin with. And I know there's this ongoing effort to really the tools and the surveys that we're using. Are they really reflective of what we want to get in, in terms of research? So I'm sure that can be hard, too, when you're trying to
1: create these studies. Absolutely. This is, this is actually something that our, our group right now just came up against. So there is a certain survey that is kind of a gold standard in the eating disorders field for asking about eating disorder symptoms. And one of the symptoms, so I am now really specializing in binge eating and I can get to that in a moment. But one of the questions to assess binge eating is asking if you have eaten what other people would think is a large amount of food. Now, this this measure is holding up fine in younger populations. Uh And I didn't actually know that this was as big of an issue until we started doing the survey. Plus, we're doing clinical interviews with older women with binge eating. Uh And I'm doing I'm doing the gold standard eating disorders diagnostic interview, and they have binge eating disorder. Yet on that question, they're saying zero. Really? And so when we started talking, they're like, well, other people aren't seeing me eat. So they wouldn't think that it's too much i eat alone i live alone i hide Mm -hmm. it from my spouse so this idea of trying to say hypothetically would other people think it's a lot is not resonating it's not clicking and so that's like exactly yeah that's exactly where you're getting at is like do these hold up in different populations because this group is reading it differently and so they're answering differently and it's in in a way that's not valid because they are truly having binge episodes but they're nobody's seeing them. And so the idea of trying to say what someone else would think isn't, it's just not holding true.
0: Yeah, exactly. So did you have to modify the question a little bit then?
1: We ended up throwing it out. Okay. okay not okay. using those data because we had the, the clinical interview data and we had some other measures about binge eating that all held together. And that one question, it just, it didn't, Yeah. Hold with it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then taking a step back a little bit, what exactly is the definition, I guess, in in your field of older? Like, I guess, because
1: is it 25 and older, like you said, or because I guess it's relative for every person. It is. And I think it's also different per field. One of the things that my team got kind of a kick out of is we were looking at some other articles for what's called late onset eating disorders. And some studies are using 25. As the cutoff for late onset, whereas our group, I'm really housed more in geriatrics. And so our sort of younger cutoff tends to be 65 or 60. You don't tend to see less than 60 in terms of like an older adult. Oftentimes it's 65 and over. Um, And then midlife, the, the parameters for midlife tend to fall around 40 to 60. Okay. with a little bit of room on either side. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of
0: sense and, and helps set up what we're going to talk about um, coming up. So, so then now like getting into more one of your, your recent publications, you and, and your colleagues, you really tried to examine the prevalence of frequency and health correlates of binge eating, like you said, in a, a sample of older adult women. Um, so before we actually dig into the actual study itself, can you first define, cause maybe listeners, this is their first time listening. What is Exactly. Is binge eating disorder and and what are the, the mental and
1: physical problems associated with it? Sure. So a binge episode is actually a very specific thing that people can experience. And a binge episode has two components to it. So one is that the amount of food has to be objectively large. So it has to be a lot more than what would be normal given the circumstances or the person. Right? So, there's an objectively large amount of food in one sitting. We typically define one sitting in about two hours. And then there also has to be loss of control at that time. You have to feel out of control of your eating at that time. And that's actually a really important piece because that's what distinguishes a binge episode from something called an objective overeating episode, So my favorite example of objective overeating is like Thanksgiving, when you sit down and you're like, I'm going to stuff myself, you eat more than what is comfortable, right? But like, you're okay with it, right? Yeah, you do it once a year. (laughs) And you don't feel out of control, or at least most people don't. For binge episodes, people feel out of control. They feel like they can't stop eating once they've started. They feel driven to eat. Um, Like they can't prevent the episode from having started. It's really, it's feeling out of control. You can't help yourself. And that actually is what is panning out in the literature to be one of the most harmful things. So there's some cool data that show regardless of how much you eat, that loss of control piece is what is so harmful. That it's what's so distressing to people. And it's predictive of of lots of other bad stuff that like just feeling out of control.
0: Yeah. 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 And what is like if you do it for a prolonged period of time, what are
1: some of the health problems that someone could develop with this disorder? Yeah. To meet criteria for binge eating disorder, you have to have had binge episodes, like I just mentioned, at least once per week for three months. Plus, you have to have some other symptoms like um, eating a lot, even when you're not full, eating a lot faster than you normally would, um, feeling a lot of self um self disgust regret blame a lot there's like a really strong emotional component to it so you have to have some of these other symptoms as well to meet for binge eating disorder and for all of that for at least three months and overall when you look at binge eating disorder or even sort of recurrent binge eating so if you're not meeting every single criteria kind of thing um this can be linked with all different kinds of health problems. So we see cardiometabolic effects. Um, there's definitely a link with type two diabetes. Um, you actually see in some studies that binge eating predicts more weight gain over time. So well, most people tend to gain weight over time. You see like a higher slope. So more weight gain over time. Yeah, definitely depression. Um, in our data, we are seeing um. In one of our studies, we have about half of our women have clinical anxiety, um, but that one hasn't sort of been as robust. Um, it, pain is a big one. Um, so, if it's experiencing physical pain um, are some of the some of the physical and, and health consequences.
0: Okay, no, that's that's helpful context. So, before you got started into this work, like how much was known about binge eating in older women? Did we did you know a whole lot, or was were you starting from scratch?
1: Not much. There had been a few studies starting to look at eating disordered behaviors in older women. And from those really early studies, it was looking like binge eating was the most common form. So that paper you just mentioned by Salome Wilfred, um, we actually started that That paper turned into something completely different than it went to be. So what we sought, we set out to do was do one study where we were just doing a really general sampling of women 60 and over to ask about prevalence of binge eating. And then we, we picked like a few correlates health correlates. So we had like negative emotions. We had how often people in general are eating nutritious foods. Um, And so, and then we had BMI. And um, so we, we did this study. We advertised really, really generally like, just looking for women over 60 to do a survey about like health, really super general. And we, we look at our data and like 26, almost 26% of these women were saying they were binge eating weekly or more. And I was like, "Mm, that can't be right. Like that seems way, way, way too high. Now, when we stepped back and we looked Um, our sample, that sample in particular, about two thirds met for overweight or obesity. And when you start getting into like, you know, weight loss clinics and and obesity clinics, you do see higher rates of binge eating disorder. But even so I was like, this is like unheard of. So we, we have this issue in psychological science called the replication crisis, meaning that a lot of our studies don't hold up. (laughs) And so we're like, well, you know, we've actually got data from two other completely independently collected studies where we had samples of women who were either 55 or 16 over and have information on binge eating. So we're like, let's see if this holds up. So we looked at that sample was online and it was almost all white women. We had another study that Carolyn had done on, um, in which she partnered with the, the food banks locally. Right. So these studies on food insecurities. And so we have the second sample where, Data were collected in person. So, students went to the food banks, the the local food pantries, and and gave these surveys in person. This sample was two-thirds Hispanic and 14% Black. And half the sample was as a household making less than $10,000 a year. Significant food insecurity, significant poverty, much more diverse in terms of ethnic. Mm -hmm. And like... 20% 20% were binge, and this was women 65 and over, 20% said that they were binging at least weekly or more. So I'm like, okay, now, now something's going on, right? Well, we had this third study where we had data. This one was a little younger, it was 55 and over. And this sample was also predominantly white, but half of that sample had a master's or doctorate degree. So it was like very educated, higher SES sample. And so we pulled that and 19% So they were binge eating weekly or more. And now this is consistent. (laughs) Yeah. And so what that paper ended up being was really sort of our own little replication of three separate studies showing that it's really hanging around one in five. So, um, and then we've since done a fourth study that the the paper is currently under review right now. And in that sample, 18% uh we're bingeing weekly or more.
0: Yeah. In your in the paper do you offer recommendations on how how do we address this cuz that's
1: very alarming numbers right if, across different groups of people too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean I think that's really I think one of the things that drives me so much in this field is that you know in general what we know is that individuals with eating disorders just like with most mental health issues people aren't getting treatment. We have a huge access to treatment issue. Um, And so, you know, eating disorders are no different than that. But when you start getting into geriatrics, geriatricians, this is not on their radar. And yeah, um, I, you know, since I started this work, have now joined the Aging Center and I'm working with geriatrics. And my current grant is with the National Institute on Aging. And so we're talking about something that's not on the radar for people who are treating older adults, even even primary care physicians treating older adults. And so I think one of our first steps is to start to raise awareness and to to kind of um, really challenge the myth that these are disorders for young people and that older people aren't struggling. And it's one of the things that we've started getting really interested in on the side, and I have yet to do this study. So if somebody would like to, I would be like, that'd be great, is looking at at physician um, expression towards patients of weight bias and weight stigma. Because anecdotally, again, in these clinical interviews, the number of older women who are getting weight shamed by their physicians and being told really unhealthy advice about weight loss is staggering. And they internalize it. And, you know, I don't know if this is a cohort effect or um, is, is really sort of a general effect, but older populations really believe they're doctors. Right? I think a lot of them, like I talked to my parents, you know, they were raised like you do what the doctor says and you really listen to the doctor and doctor knows all. And doctors know a lot. Um, but so, you know, this is somebody who's very influential in these older adults' lives, who is like shaming them for their weight telling them that's a problem, I think really actually fueling the fire of internalized weight stigma, um, which is actually really detrimental. It's not helpful to hate yourself. It's actually really detrimental. Exactly. Yeah. So I think one of the things we'd like to do is start raising awareness, um, you know, start trying to get more screening procedures out there. And then the current study that we are doing right now is actually a treatment development study.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's 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 really great. And to your point, I think because I talk to my parents a lot, and I think there can be so many downstream effects of hearing the advice that doctors give. It may not be the best advice, and then they could maybe vocalize that to kids around. Because my mom would often come back from the doctor and say, "Yeah, he called me fat, and I need to lose weight." And you know, that's could be in part contributed to how I developed an eating disorder. I was scared. I did not want to go to a doctor who would shame me for my weight. It's just so many things that doctors and just the healthcare industry really is just not aware of the actual problem. So I'm glad that there's getting data generated out there that we can really just present and hopefully change the, the landscape a little bit and how we talk about
1: it. Absolutely. That's what I, that's what I hope is we can start raising awareness and then starting to develop interventions. And even, you know, at some point, preventive interventions, because people can start developing this in midlife or even later, you know, we're yeah. seeing a handful of older women who have COVID onset. So the pandemic hit, and all of their activities were shut down, there was a lot of fear and, and hesitancy to um, get together with other people. And so they're like, there's chocolate cake in the kitchen and I have food and I'm around food all the time. And I have nothing else that brings me pleasure, you know? Um, And so I think older people are not immune from developing new disordered eating either. So I'm hopeful that we can have some prevention kind of measures as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, But one of the things that's been so heartbreaking kind of on that note is the number of women who have come in in the last few years that we've been doing this research, And are like, thank you for talking to us about this. Nobody talks to us about this. Like at most, my doctor says that I'm fat and that since I'm not losing weight, clearly I'm not trying. And they're like, I'm doing everything and I just can't lose weight. And I try these things, but then I, you know, it basically like restricts too much and then overeat or, you know, just all that kind of stuff. And they're like, no, but nobody's talking to us about that.
0: It's so terrible. And you hear, I hear a lot. Like my mom will say like, well, yeah, we're going out to dinner tonight. So I'm not going to eat lunch or, you know, trying to like compensate for it. And it's just, mom, you can't do that. Like, but it's, you know, my doctor gets, I, I go to the doctor next week. I don't want him to get mad at me. And, you know, it, it's terrible. It's really sad. Um, mm-hmm. And who else knows what else they're saying just you know, inside their own head and not vocalizing. It's just really sad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One of the things that we're noticing, we've done some preliminary and um, looking at our qualitative data. So hearing what people talk about and sort of looking for themes that the older women are talking about. And what we're seeing is that, you know, I think I think all of us, at least in Western society, are aware of sort of like weight stigma. Right. So, um feeling embarrassed about weight or wanting to be thinner or that, you know, heavier is bad. Um, And then also eating disorders have a self-stigma too. So, you know, criticizing yourself for having this to begin with. So our older women are having this real, you know, self-blame, self-criticism around having disordered eating in the first place. But then they have this added layer of this internalized ageism. Like, I am too old for this. At this age, I shouldn't still have this problem. I should have gotten this under yeah. control by now. And so it's this—it's like this synthesis of internalized ageism and internalized weight stigma and eating stigma that just come together into real suffering in our women. And it's just, it's like, it, it's hard to hear. It's very heartbreaking. And it also gives us a lot of motivation to keep moving forward, to try to really shift this paradigm to get more help for for older age groups and to get awareness out exactly exactly i'm so glad that you're
0: you're doing this work and and one of the things i really admire about your work is that you really try to address a lot of these key gaps that are out there in the field. And and in one of your other studies, you looked at one particular model within the objectification theory that proposes eating disorder pathology develops from body shame. So kind of like what we've been talking about now. But a lot of that research that informs this model was based on young, non-Hispanic Caucasian women. So you tried to use this model in a more diverse sample of women. So
1: can you tell us a little bit about that effort? Sure. And that that study in particular, um, Salome Wilfred, who was first author in the, the other study we were talking about, um, she was a huge, huge part of doing this study. And it, it really came about from, again, our recognition that we need to look at more diverse populations in the eating disorders world. And so the study, we wanted to look at two things, one of which we have not published yet on, which uh, was looking at fat talk. So how much you're sort of you know, self-criticizing weight and, and appearance, um, and then also to test this objectification um, theory. And so in objectification theory, um, like you mentioned, it came about in younger white samples. And the idea is that when, um, when girls are raised in Western culture, we receive messages that our self-worth or, or what our worth is, is in what we look like. There were sexual objects, and that is where our worth is. Comes from, and when we start to actually believe it about ourselves, we start to check on ourselves more, and so that's called body surveillance. So, so trying to see how do I fit, you know, do I do I meet these expectations? Do I do I have that self worth? And that when we start to realize by surveilling our bodies that we may have a difference in what society says the perfect woman is, that we can start to feel shame about that, and that the shame that we feel can then bring about depression and eating disorders and some other, other mental health problems as well. But those are really sort of the two that have the most, most literature behind them. And so as a part of that, we are like, this is only, like you mentioned, it's only been done in younger white samples. And so we wanted to look at it in a more ethnically diverse population. And so our, our sample that we had was half non-Hispanic Caucasian. And then the other half was, we ended up having to, um, to group all minority population or all minority um, individuals in the same sample and do two groups because we didn't have enough of each individual ethnicity to look at differences, Um, but it was predominantly Hispanic and black in that sample. And what we found was that when you look at it just at one time point, and that's actually another limitation of that theory is that most of the data we're looking at it just like at one point in time, that it held up in both ethnicities. So the the non-Hispanic white and the multi-ethnic sample. But then when you look at it over time, over the course of six months, that that surveillance didn't actually predict body shame. Body shame did predict eating disorder symptoms, but we didn't see that first link. And so uh, we had a couple of thoughts on that. And, and again, ethnicity didn't impact that relationship of okay. those of those experiences. So, so both us were experiencing body shame predicting eating disorder symptoms. And so what we thought about, we we're like, well, we don't think that objectification theory is wrong. Like anybody who hears that is like, that makes sense, right? Right, um, right. Our sample was a little bit older than some of the earlier objectification theory literature. So we were like, maybe we've got a sample where that surveillance and shame sort of cycle is established already. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that we did see was that... Previous body shame was very strongly predictive of future body shame. Okay. So it was almost like there was no other room to see how surveillance could have played a role because yeah. so much of it was like shame, predicting more shame, predicting more shame. Um, and that potentially it's such a fast cycle where that we check in on ourselves. We don't you know meet the standard and then we feel bad about ourselves. That, that may be such a quick cycle that in a three month gap, it's not going to necessarily be sort of an independent, like, right. So, um, so that's what we found on that was that body shame was really, really driving a lot. It's just so fascinating. So, um, oh, what was I going to say? I had a question
0: that I didn't have on my sheet. It was going to ask, but now it's out in my head. Um, so, you do have another paper coming out in May um, and, and feel free to share what you can, but um, that looks at negative body image, how that mediates various aspects of quality of life and like things like sleep and enjoying physical activity and things like that. So
1: can you give us a sneak peek into what you found in that study? Sure. This study, um, one of the one of the things that as I have started interacting with other medical fields, one of the pieces of feedback that I have gotten is, isn't it just BMI? It's all just BMI, right? And so I was like, no, it's not. And I'm going to prove it. (laughs) Exactly. In this study, we had women aged uh, 50 to 86. And we looked at first how BMI related to some of these you know, health behaviors, so quality of life, um, how often you eat nutritious foods, enjoying physical activity, um, mood, that kind of stuff. And as has been shown in the literature, yes, BMI is linked with a lot of these poor health behaviors. But I was like, I don't think that's the whole picture. And so what we looked at was if that sort of negative body image, so feeling bad about yourself, really, if that was what was really driving all of this. Right, that if you put that into the picture, then BMI doesn't matter as much. It's really body image. And what we found is that is the case for all of those outcomes except enjoyment of physical activity. So, you know, sleep, um, quality of life, all these indicators of quality of life, um, you know, physical, psychological, um, social quality of life, um, and uh, how often you eat nutritious foods. All of that body image was really what was driving it. Enjoyment of physical activity was the only thing that didn't hold up. Really? Mm-hmm. And why do you think that is? I have two two thoughts on on that one. One is that um, we're actually on this particular measure of enjoying physical activity. We see pretty high scores. And so if everybody is sort of scoring in the same range, you're not going to see much of a relationship because there's not a whole lot of wiggle room to see okay different scores. Um, so I think that may have had something to do with it. Um, the other thing is that I do, I think with physical activity, I think BMI is stronger, what we're seeing in terms of physical activity scores. And we're seeing that in other studies as well, in other literature, that, that I think that relationship is stronger, um, I don't necessarily think that's is still accounting for everything. Um, Correct. Yeah, it's, hard, it's like hard to overcome that because it's such exactly.
0: a powerful, Yeah. Well, just good to show you, you can't look at just one thing in this very complex picture mm-hmm. of like binge eating body image. Like that's very, you have to look at everything. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that you took a step back because I think BMI, it's a very controversial issue. Like it can tell you some things, but it's like, it doesn't even tell you like muscle mass, for example, like Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. It's just a number, uh, kind of like the scale. Uh, so, so yeah, I am I'm really excited to see that paper come out. So thank you for all the work that you're doing just on a variety of issues in this field. It's just crazy. Um, so my next question is kind of like moving away from the research. It's, it's a two-parter. So in your opinion, what's the most challenging aspect of studying eating disorders, disordered eating body image and, What's the most rewarding?
1: The challenge one I had a harder time coming up with. <laughs> um, partly because I, I think the enjoyment so outweighs it. Um, and the challenges that I that kind of came to mind were actually related to interacting with the world outside of the eating disorders world in my patients. So it was more of like trying to get other fields to see how big of a problem this is. Um, you know, fighting the battles of just BMI versus true other like, there can be things going on. A lot of people who have eating disorders don't necessarily have elevated BMIs or, you know, abnormally low BMIs. So we can't just use that, right? So I think some of the challenges are actually communicating on more of a professional and societal and even policy level. And that's an experience that a lot of eating disorders folks at uh, researchers, uh, I think, experience. And you're trying to convince funding agencies that this is really worth putting money into. Um, and it's not just a young white girl problem. That This is really, really impactful. So, I think that that's sort of the best way that I can encapsulate the challenges that we have. Um, the enjoyment piece, I like I mentioned before, having women come in, it's this bittersweet feeling of that they have been neglected and really understudied um, and in fact shamed by a lot of their providers and even family members. You know, I have some a lot of folks coming in and they have adult children or spouses who are you know, pretty hard on them and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then to be one of the first people that sits down and talks with them about this and takes them seriously and cares about how they feel about themselves um, is really special. And I feel very honored that I get to have these conversations um, with these women. They have, they're just amazing, amazing amazing stories. You know, it's, um, it's really, really wonderful. And I think even when I was doing work with younger populations Again, something that impacts so many people, even if we can move the dial a little bit, you can really make a difference in someone's life. You know, we had a paper, um, Christina Versail was the first author on it, but we tailored the body project for um, midlife and older women. And at the end, we have some of the quotes that we put in there. And, you know, some of the quotes are things like not wanting to wear you know, and We live in San Antonio. It gets to be like 110 in the summer. And we have these women who would be wearing long sleeves and pants because they were so embarrassed by what they look like. I'm like, that's miserable. Right. Um, you know, and people commenting about not being a slave to the scale anymore and sort of feeling comfortable in their own skin and their own clothes. Um, and, and that's just really wonderful because I hope that they can go on in their lives and feel better about their lives. So um, I could go on forever about the enjoyment and the value because it's just I it's so it's really rewarding. It's really amazing. And I hope that we can really move the needle on awareness.
0: I love that. I absolutely love that. It makes me want to cry. It's just because I, I'm sure you're making such a big impact on so many different women and, and people. And I'm, I'm just so, so thankful for all that work that you're doing. Um, and as far as like the challenges, I was really happy to hear that like the National Institutes of Aging is funding an eating disorder type grant because you typically don't really hear about that, you know, from an aging perspective. So I was thinking about that too when you were talking about funding and just how that those agencies, like the different institutes at NIH, each of them could benefit from eating disorder research, like. But it's just not talked about enough, and I don't know how we elevate it to like the council level where it is discussed at least. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's
1: always in my head. Like, how do we get NIH to recognize it a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually talking with a couple of my colleagues a couple of months ago about how our field so often we have to prove why eating disorders are the problem. You know that yeah. like a lot of times the, the pushback is, well, it it hangs with all these other problems, so. Is, is the eating disorder really the problem that we have to solve, you know? And we keep having to fight that fight over and over again to show, like, yes, these are harmful. And yes, we need to, to dedicate time and resources to trying to solve this problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So...
0: One last question, and it's something that I ask all of my guests, and that is what is a piece of advice um, that you'd like to offer listeners? Maybe it's their first time listening and they want to seek help. Uh, maybe it's a it's an older woman and she does feel shame about her body right now and just doesn't know who to talk to or where to go. So how do they
1: take that first step? Sure. I think in our population, that's an even more more difficult question to answer because so often the providers are already the ones that are sources of shame for for feeling like dysregulating. Um you know I think psychologists and mental health providers have a little bit more awareness of the diversity um of people that are presenting with these kinds of problems. Um, but I would say first of all, if you know for midlife and older women struggling with this, you're not alone we hear that over and over again. I thought I was the only one. I didn't think anybody else was struggling with these kinds of things. Um, And it's far more common than anybody had ever guessed. Um, And I think with COVID we're seeing even higher bumps um, or not the disease itself, but the pandemic. Um, And so knowing that, you know, there are people who are trying to make a difference and trying to raise awareness and, um, find better treatments for older adults who are struggling with eating disorders. Um, you know, we're out there. I think the other thing, and yes, for one piece of advice, um, something that that always sticks with me on the body image side is that so often in our society, we think that we have to be hard on ourselves to motivate, right? Like if, if I beat myself up, then it'll make me eat better. It'll make me go to the gym more. All of that stuff we hear in the background. and the opposite is actually true. And so often we have trouble understanding that. And I, I have a little metaphor that if we have a moment, I'd like to share. So I'd love for that, folks yeah. to, try to try to digest it, do you have an old pair of sneakers? Like, do you have an old pair of sneakers in your house? Yeah. 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 Okay. Your old pair, how do you treat your old pair of sneakers?
0: Like, I what do you do? I don't even like acknowledge them. Like, I. <laughs>
1: Right. Like for me, when it's raining, I put my old pair of sneakers on because I don't really care if they get wet or muddy. Right. They get wet and muddy. And then I throw them in the trunk of my car in San Antonio in 110 degree heat and they get crunchy. Right. They smell terrible. Right? They're damaged. <laughs> right, I don't treat them very well. Now, what about your brand new pair of sneakers?
0: Oh, I will make sure that they're in like a separate closet and they don't get like messed up.
1: I only wear them when they absolutely have to be worn. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Do not wear them if it is raining at all. I put the little smelly, good, smelly stuff in there so that they don't stink. If they get like the tiniest speck of dirt, I clean it. Like we treat them better. Right. And we yeah. treat as humans, we treat things that we like and we value better than things that we don't like. And the same is true for our bodies. So there's this myth that if I like my body, I'm going to like self-indulge and never exercise and just eat pizza all day and all these kind of like things that you hear. That start, but actually the opposite is true because if we really like our bodies, we do what's healthy for it. Right. We want to keep it in good condition, right? And so that I think we, if we can start to shake that up a little bit, that myth that we have to that's hate right. ourselves. Um, exactly. It, it doesn't work.
0: Exactly. Um, no, I love that metaphor. I think that's so good. We just we don't take care care of it. And I, I think you have to, you have to step outside of your body in a way or think of it as some kind of other entity to really understand how to care for it mm-hmm. rather than just talking down about yourself. And like, oh, mm-hmm. I always catch myself saying, oh, I feel fat today. And that's just always like a constant problem. And my husband has to say, I can't say that. Like, you know, like really teach me. And it's, it can be hard. And then you hear everything from the media. Like it's just difficult. And how do we drown out those voices and make sure we are caring for ourselves and that you do matter. Your, your worth is not tied to your body or this number on the scale. Mm -hmm. And that liking yourself isn't a bad thing. (laughs) Exactly. You can be confident. It's good to just love yourself. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I love everything about that you're that you're doing. I could have actually talked to you all day long, just all of this great work, because there's just so much to explore in this in this area of the field. And I, I just can't wait to, to see what you and
1: your your lab is doing. So thank you so much for your for your time and your expertise. Yes, thank you so much for this opportunity. And again, I have mentioned it a couple of times raising awareness is is such a huge part of what we want to do. And so opportunities like this help us to raise awareness. So thank you very, very much for giving us the time to talk about it.
0: That's a wrap on this week's. I just hit my hand on the edge of the table and That's a wrap on this week's episode of Picture Perfect. Again, thank you so much to Dr. Kilfella and her and her wonderful work that she's doing and, and all of her colleagues. I'm just so excited to see what else she's, she's going to bring uh, into the eating disorder research field. Such critical work. Um, and what I'm going to do, as always, in the episode description are going to be links to all of the papers that we referenced in today's episode. So make sure to read those and, and get into more information that she's working on. Um, also, her lab website, is going to be included on there as well. If you want to dig into other stuff that we didn't have time to go into today. So a lot of amazing stuff going on. And if you have suggestions on other guests to bring to the podcast, please feel free to shoot them my way. I always include my email on the episode description as well. I'd love to hear from you all. If you just want to say, hey, like, thanks. I love listening to the podcast. I always love those emails too, because let's be honest. Um, and follow us on social media. So I'll include all of that as well. Um, it's, it's so, it's so great to just be able to connect with you all in this way. So please be sure not to be a stranger and to just connect with me in any way that you feel comfortable. Um, I, I love hearing from everyone. And I think now that's it's officially my time to go because my dog, it just will not stop staring. And I do think I need to give her her food. It's going to be 20 minutes early, but Hey, you know, you only live once and that's what we're going to do. So adorable dog eyes always win. Right. So without further I will talk to you guys next time. Please be sure to take care of yourselves, be kind to yourself, and to remember that that number on the scale means absolutely nothing and you matter so much in this world. Talk to you guys later.